Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. In this new teaching series, Avoiding Infection, humans are naturally conditioned to avoid infection. It's disgusting. But as it turns out, this natural inclination might be the very thing that needs to be avoided in a church that's marked by mercy instead of sacrifice. Let's turn now to the final part of our series, Social Disgust and Hospitality. I'm going to say something a little controversial here. I think, I really think this is true. I think that the love between a parent and a child is the most disgusting thing in the world. Now, just hear me out. Some of you are like, I don't know if that's true, right? And we, we always speak of this in lofty terms. Uh, you know, it's like the love between a parent and a child, it's beautiful, it's so raw, and it's disgusting from the beginning. Uh, it really is. Like, I, I have not been in a delivery room, uh, so I don't know this for sure, um, but I've seen, you know, I've seen pictures. Like, when the baby comes out and they just lay that baby on mama's chest right at the beginning, that's disgusting. That's gross. Right, they rarely will like clean it up completely. That's just gross. Some I mean, you you don't have to. Here, I brought I brought visuals. Let me just show. You. See, so this is my baby's little nubba wub nubba wub nub whatever that is. It's this is her pacifier, right? What happens if a parent sees their baby's pacifier drop on the ground? Now, let me clarify this. If this is a second or third child. If it's first child, you know, you've got a special sanitizing solution somewhere. Second or third child, though, this drops on the ground, what happens? Right, it's this right here, yeah. Like that, back in your mouth, that's where it goes. Now, come, I'll, I'll get any one of you, let me pop this in your mouth. Are you going to do that? No, that's disgusting. It's gross, right? I, it just, I, I, I raided my daughter's bag earlier today. To find, this right here, right? We all know what this is used for. This is disgusting. If I pulled one of these out and like pointed to you and was like, hey, Hayden, can you help me out? Right? <laughs> That's disgusting, but we don't, we don't even think twice about doing this for a child. This is, this is the extent to which we go. We, we're gross. Now, you know, this, this is gross. Everybody knows what this is. I grew up with one of these, right? Uh, they say, for those who don't know or are unaware, I know those who are online, they've got an up-close shot of this. You know, this goes inside the nostril, right? This is gross enough. And if you cut this open, it's even grosser. I don't know if you've ever done that or not, but if you cut that open, you think you've squeezed all that out? You have not squeezed all that out. That's just not reality. But, you know, for a, for a parent with a child, every day we'll take that. This season in particular, this, this is gross. This was gross enough. This is not the age of parenting that I live in, though. Like, I grew up, my mom shoving that up my nose. This is the age of parenting that I live in, right here. Right right here. Now, for those who do not know, this little red piece right here goes in my mouth, all right? This little piece right here, that goes in my daughter's nose. And I just inhale as much as I can. Now, would anyone like me to, like, anybody got a stuffy nose in here? You'd like me to try this out? (laughs) My daughter, not your daughter. (laughs) I will share. And what's interesting about this, it's like a tiny, I don't even know if I can get this out, this tiny little piece of foam in here, right, that protects you and me from the craziness that is in this, this test tube of, of viral whatever that is in there. 
I know it doesn't work because I get a sore throat every time my daughter has one. You know, I, here's, the, here's the interesting thing. We're always, like, disgusted by birds, you know, the way they regurgitate food into their babies' mouths. I'm convinced there's a cardinal outside your window watching you do this. That's why they're regurgitating. They are disgusted by you. Uh, it's not the other way around. That, that, that's how this works. This is disgusting, and it's a disgusting reality that we live into over and over again. Now, um, let me just pause here. If this is your first Sunday here, I'm not on a rabbit trail. I, I'm not. You might think I am, like I just decided to come up and raid my daughter's back. That's not what I did. This, this is actually a central spe- space of where we are. I'm in the final part of this series called Avoiding Infection, and uh, this is a space that we've been exploring the intersection of faith and disgust. And if you've been tracking with me all through this series, you already know this to be the case, but there are quite a few ways in which our disgust responses in life actually affect our faith, and they affect them in negative ways if we're not careful. Uh, and, and I've talked about these each week. You know, there's a, there's a physiological response, a disgust response that's important because it protects our bodies. But disgust as a human response gets carried into other areas of life. It gets carried into our religious life. I talked about that the first couple weeks. It gets carried into our moral lives. I talked about that last week. And it gets carried into our social lives. And I'm going to talk about that today. I want to talk about the way that our disgust response actually kind of flows into that area. And here's what disgust is. Let me just kind of clarify it this way for you so you understand where we're heading here in just a little while. Disgust is a boundary marking response. It helps me establish the perimeters of my body as I, as I go through this. It's a bon- body monitoring response. So what am I saying? This is my body. That is your body. You keep your body over there. I'll keep my body over here, and I'll keep it safe. Right? I don't want to cross-contaminate. I don't want to kind of get into that, and I don't want anything outside of my body crossing that boundary. That's how I protect myself. In one way or another, I kind of keep that distance between me and others. And our physical bodies are, of course, the starting point for this. But it doesn't always end there. And, of course, that's where the problem comes up. This is the danger zone. When it moves beyond just our physical body and it starts getting into these other areas of our lives, our religious lives, our morality, and, of course, as we talk today, our social lives, here's where the problem comes. And it comes not only for me individually, but it comes for us as a larger society in this way. And, and of course, as I said, we've spent several weeks on this. And today alone, I just want to hone in on what it means to be disgusted in terms of our social lives. If disgust is that, that, that boundary mark, marking thing, if it monitors the boundaries of my life and my intimacy, it should really come as no surprise that love in some way does involve things like this, Right? If there's such a thing as being on the inside, we can only know what's being on the inside in relation to what's on the outside, what's out there. And disgust helps us establish the difference between the inside and the the, the interior of our lives and the outside of our lives of what's happening out there. And love follows up as a possible response. So if I'm going to cross that boundary, if I'm going to relax the boundary for just a little bit, and this, this is a perfect example of me in my life relaxing the boundary in my life, where I'm allowing something from my daughter to come over to me, if I relax that boundary, we call that love. This is where love comes in. I will lower those boundaries to allow people into my interior space. I'll lower those boundaries in order to be close to someone. I'll lower the boundaries in order to smell my wife's breath in the morning when I wake up, or you'll do the same thing, right? This is what we do. We lower our boundaries of disgust. You won't do that for anybody else. If I walked up to you first thing in the morning, breathe in your face, I might get punched. 
But you'll do that for those you love because what we do in relation to love is we relax the boundaries in our lives. I do this for my daughter because I've seen my daughter in a hospital bed where she could hardly breathe. And I know if I just do this for love of my daughter, if I relax my boundary, if I lower that for just a minute, I could help her breathe. I could help her have life. For love of my daughter, I'll relax those boundaries. And the question that really comes up in moments like this, I think for all of us, is, well, how far is too far? How far is too far? And the reason we ask this question is because on the one hand, we sort of think of love as a limited resource in our life, and we also think of love as something that if I give it to one person, then I'm being unfair to the person that I haven't given it to. So I'll ask questions like, if I love my children all this well, is it unfair for me to love someone else's children in the same way? Is that too much? Have I pushed the line too far? If I love my aging parents really well, is it okay for me to love other senior citizens in the same way? Have I pushed the line too far? Do I have enough resources to go around? Is it unfair to my aging parents to love them? If I love my grandkids and, and I love them deeply, right? Is it okay for me to buy other presents for kids around the world? Have I pushed it too far in that way? Do I have enough love to give? And even if I do have enough love, is it fair to those who are closest? And the question of how far is too far when it comes to our love is a question as I said earlier, of equity or fairness? Is it fair for me to do this? Is it even appropriate? Do I have enough love to give? And that's always grounded in that, that basic assumption that love is limited, that there's only so much to go around. I don't have enough love to go around to everybody in the world, and if I love here, I can't love there. If I go here in love, then how can I possibly love in this way? And we feel the tension all the time in our lives about this love. We, and what we think of ourselves, this is where it becomes problematic. What we think about ourselves, we are often, not always, but often guilty of projecting onto God. We think because I'm limited and I can't love everyone, then in some way God might be limited and God can't love. If my love has limits, perhaps God's love has limits. If God's love is limited, then I need to know personally where the limits are so that I can be on the right side of those limits. Right? I need to be within the boundary as I'm going. And and what I've discovered is faithful religious folks throughout the centuries have done this over and over and over and over again. We are always trying to wrestle down where the limits of God's love are, trying to figure out exactly what that looks and perceives. There, if there is a limit, if there is a boundary, I want to be on the right side of the boundary. I want to figure out how I can be in with God in this way. And though we might, you know, at some point in time, blame God for the boundary, God established the boundary, God drew the lines, whatever, what I'm convinced of often is that more often than not, the boundary is set by our own perception of self, of who we think we are in relation to God. Our personal identity, and, and you know, you can buy into this or not, but, but what happens oftentimes in our personal identity is we create our personal identity based on what we're not. Right? I perceive someone who's different from me, and I recognize I am male, you are female. Right? I perceive someone who's a different color than me, and I perceive that I am white, they are black or brown-skinned, whatever it may be. And we create these, these barriers in our lives or these identity markers in our lives based on what we are not. I am not that. I am this. And we start giving names, and we categorize them, and we do this with a whole lot of different things. You know, we do it with a skin color. We do it in our physical beings. We do it in our, our, you know, our social lives, socioeconomically. We do all those types of things. And what, here's, here's where the problem comes. We find it hard to love anything that lies on the other side of the boundary because what's on the other side of the boundary is not me. It's easy to love myself. It's easy to protect myself. It's hard to extend that love on the other side of the boundary. Now, I can cross the line. 
I can cross that and I can love my children from time to time, but the reason it's so easy to love my children is because they remind me of me. Right? Some of you, you look into your children's eyes and you see yourself. It's easy to love our kids in that way because we can see ourselves so clearly in them, so readily in them as we look at them. I'll have a harder time doing that with someone who doesn't remind me of me. And here's the most damning part of this reality. What ends up happening in situations like this is I find it hard to believe that God can love anything over there because I'm not over there. I find it hard sometimes to believe that God can love anyone who's on the other side of my reality or the other side of this boundary marker that I've created for my self-identity because I'm not in that picture. I'm not in that space. How can God love the alcoholic or the drug addict or anything like that because I'm not there and I find that disgusting? I can imagine God loving that. Surely God would agree with me, right? Surely God would be on my side of the boundary. And for us, these, these boundaries that are created become tools to help us manage a limited resource. But when we project them back onto God, when we say that God is limited in this world, what happens is these tools become tools of isolation. They become tools of separation. And they become tools and, and ways that we can ostracize certain people from our life. They're definitely isolating for those who are on the other side of those boundaries, for those we've pushed out and pushed beyond the boundary. But here's the interesting thing. As we push more and more people outside of our lives, we ourselves experience those same things. We become isolated. We become ostracized. We become all of those things, especially if we know that God is showing up in those other places. And so this, my friend, I think, as, as Miroslav Volf would describe, is the epicenter of sin. The center of sin in the world is actually this space of boundary making. In fact, Jesus, you see this over and over again in Scripture, Jesus doesn't come and just point out unclean people groups. Jesus comes and reframes boundaries. Jesus does this with his actions. We've looked at these passages like in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 12, and in other spaces where Jesus crosses boundary lines because he is assuming, he's seeing that the boundary itself is the sinful reality. And Jesus has to erase and reframe what it means to have a boundary line. And he crosses that line. He does that through his teaching where he says, as he reminds us back of Hosea chapter 6, 6, I want you to learn what this means. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. He's reframing the boundary with his teaching. He's doing this with his disciples. In fact, the very final prayer that we have recorded of Jesus in John chapter, the, the long prayer that we have recorded of Jesus at the end, in John chapter 17, Jesus is again praying that we might reframe these boundary lines, that we might eliminate them, in fact. In his final prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, in John chapter 17, verse 21, he says this, he says that they may be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent them. Verse 23, I in them, you and me, that they may become completely one, that there may be no partition between them, there may be no dividing line, but they may be united completely as one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and I have loved them, even as you have loved me. You see, Jesus teaches us this new way. He models this new way in his life as he crosses boundaries, and he prays about it right here in this closing prayer that he has because he knows that for you and me, this is going to be the biggest challenge of our lives. And it won't be erased overnight. It'll be something that you and I have to practice at over and over and over again. Living into this new way is going to be difficult. And you don't have to actually look very far. You actually see this and how difficult it is just by looking at the Scriptures you know, Peter was one of those people that in Jesus' life, Jesus crossed a social barrier in order to get to Peter. Peter's sitting down by the lake one day, fishing, doing his normal thing. 
in his socioeconomic class. This is his plight. This is where he should be. He's probably struggling every single day to make it. And then this teacher from Galilee walks up, crosses a social barrier, walks into his life, and invites Peter to be a part of his world. Peter knows the power of crossing the barrier, crossing the boundary, and being included into this new world that God is creating through Jesus Christ. He, he gets it. He's lived into it. He's been invited by Jesus to be the leader of this group. In fact, Peter gets to preach the very first sermon in Acts chapter 2. And when he does, all kinds of boundaries were crossed. Languages. People heard the gospel in their own language as he's stepping out there. Peter is the one responsible for that. He's responsible for, for interpreting what is taking place and how God is moving in that midst. And Peter still gets it wrong. Peter still has to practice at it over and over again. By the time we get to Acts chapter 10, where Hayden read to us from just a few minutes ago, Luke tells us the story of a time when Peter did, once again, get it wrong. He's the anchor to the church. He's the rock. His testimony is the rock to which God will build his church. All these beautiful things. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter's walking down the road one day, and he has a hangry moment. I don't know if you noticed this, but this is what happens in, in verse 9. It says, about noon the next day, as they were on their journey, approaching the city, Peter goes up on the roof to pray. And you're like, oh, that's so, hung, that's so holy, right? The next verse, it kind of unpacks a little bit more about what's happening. He became hungry, and he wanted to eat something, right? So he's like super hungry at this point. He's like, I'm just going to go be with God until I get something to eat. This is where I need to be. So he's praying in this moment. He becomes hungry. He wants something to eat. And while it was being prepared, it says he fell into a trance. Here's where God starts to point out to Peter how Peter has created these boundaries once again and the, the error of his ways. Verse 11, Peter looks up in this trance. He sees heaven opened up in front of him. And something like a large sheet is coming down out of heaven. All right, it's being lowered all four corners. I don't know what's grabbing it, but this, this sheet is lowered down. And he sees it coming down out of heaven. And he doesn't quite see what's in it at this moment. But as it comes down, he gets a glimpse of what is carried in this sheet. And he looks into the sheet. And in it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Now, to us, it's probably less clear. This just looks like a sheet full of animals, right? But to Peter, it's super clear what's happening. Every, every animal in that sheet is disgusting, right? It's as if God has lowered a sheet for us in this world full of cockroaches and, and snakes and other slimy things, unless you just love those things. Some of you in here are probably like, I love snakes. What's wrong with you, right? I get it. I get it. I get it. But, you know, whatever is the disgusting animal for you, this is what's in the sheet in that moment. And here's where it gets even worse, he sees the sheet in front of him. Peter's got this gag reflex like working up inside of him of how disgusting this is. And then God says to him these words, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And he's, okay, no, no, I'm good, right? Like he just, he, I was disgusted by looking at them, but now you've just thrown it over the edge. Like I'm not putting that in my mouth right? That's not happening. You know, I don't, I don't know what would gross you out in that way. I'm not even going to try to, but just imagine that God has invited you into that space to eat those things. And Peter responds out of this voice of disgust. Oh, no, 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 right? By no means, Lord, I am not putting that in my mouth. I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean in that way. No, I'm not doing it. And he builds off of this gag reflex, but God responds to him by removing the boundary. And he says this very clearly. He says, the voice says to him again a second time, whatever God has made clean, you must not call profane. And what's interesting about this is God doesn't just say this one more time, but it, the story goes on. It says that God has to say this to him over and over again. 
The very next verse, verse 16, says, This happened three times, and then the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. I mean, you can imagine here, we don't get the full details, but there's this sort of like exchange and interchange between Peter and God in this moment. Like, God, I don't, I don't think so. I'm good. I, you know what? I'm really not hungry after all. Like I thought I was, but I'm not. I'm okay. And God's like, no, don't call anything profane that I have made clean. Go kill and eat. And Peter's like, no, you really got the wrong person. Like, there's no amount of seasonal that I can put on this that's going to make it better. I just can't do it. I'm not going to do this. And God comes back. No, don't call anything that I have made profane. It's clean, right? Go kill and eat. And he goes on and on. And every time Peter comes back with something else, and three times this happens, and on a certain level... It's true. God was using the example of purity codes out of Leviticus to talk to us about food. Everything in that sheet uh, that was lower down on the do not eat list. Don't eat it, don't eat it, don't eat it, don't eat it. But you and I both know this story is not really about food. It's not about food at all. It's not what Peter's doing. And Peter, of course, discovers in a very real way shortly after coming off the roof that the vision was not about contaminated food. It's about contaminated people. Because just shortly after coming off the roof, Peter is called into a space where he'll meet the Gentile Cornelius and God's Spirit will descend upon this Gentile and his entire family. And Peter's checked. This isn't about contaminated food and and what you do with it. It's about the way that we as people talk about contaminated people. It's about the way that our disgust trigger causes us to forget that God's love as it's poured out in the world is for the whole world. It's for everybody as they come down. And God uses the animal image here. And I actually think it's a really important usage of this symbol. On a certain level, yes, it's just a symbol. It's just a metaphor. But there's something a little bit deeper here. On on a whole other level, God is speaking to Peter about Peter's inclination to dehumanize people. And let me talk talk to you for just a minute about this. Because this is a reality for all of us. God is speaking to us on this level as well. Right, cognitively, I think all of us in this room, all of you who are watching online, you would agree we should love everyone, right? Cognitively, when I think about this, yeah, absolutely, I should love. You know, I don't wake up in the morning and be like, no, there's this family down the road. I just feel like I really should hate them. I just feel very compelled that I should have hatred in my heart towards them. That's just not how it works. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. On a, on a certain level, we feel like we should love the human race. We should love all of them. We should lower our disgust triggers, and we should get in there. So how do you and I not love everyone? Well, there's a sneaky way around this. There's a sneaky way that as human beings we've gotten around loving our neighbor. And the way that we get around loving our neighbor is by making our neighbor less than human. Let me give you a few examples. And it always has to do with animals. Right? Human beings have done this for centuries. I'm supposed to love everybody, but if they're not somebody, then I'm off the hook. I don't have to do it. Some of you lived through the genocide in Rwanda. You remember seeing it on the news. And in Rwanda, there was the Hutus and the Tutsis. And these two tribes were out to get each other. In fact, one of them, the Hutus, would want to kill the Tutsis altogether. And here's how they helped people, convince people that they should. They never referred to the Tutsis as people. They referred to them as cockroaches over and over again. They would call them cockroaches. On the news, they would call them cockroaches. In the paper, they would call them cockroaches. Everywhere you went, you'd call them cockroaches. What, what's the point? What they're doing in that moment is they're dehumanizing the other. 
They're saying they're less than a human being, and if they're less than a human being, then I don't have to worry about loving them. I don't have to worry about treating them in the same way. This happened in Rwanda. This happened, it happens in America, right? We've done this throughout the centuries to black Americans over and over by referring to them in animalistic terms, whether it be like a raccoon or monkey or something like that. What have we done? We've dehumanized people. With our language, we dehumanize. And if you're less than human, then I don't have to love you. I can lower. We do this today with women. One of the greatest problems when you think about the way that people refer to women, if you refer to a woman with the B word or uh, as a female dog, what are you doing? You're dehumanizing them. You're putting them in a space where they're less than human, and if they're less than human, then I don't have to love you in the same way. Right? Nazis did this with Jews. They would call the Jews all over the place rats. And they would take it even further. They, they developed this word, which Germans often do by meshing words together, but they called them the Untermenschen, right? which is subhuman. Under men is what it means, really. And that's how they referred to them. They weren't, they weren't the mention. They were untermenschen. They were less than human. And over and over again, human beings have this sneaky way of calling people names, of putting that out there, that will ultimately think of the other as less than human. And when we can do that, well, I don't have to love you anymore. I'm not compelled to love you anymore. And and when I call you those names like rat or cockroach or anything like that, just by saying that word, right, my disgust response triggers, doesn't it? I mean, we, we're all disgusted by cockroaches. Well, most of us are disgusted by cockroaches. I know some cultures would eat that. That's fine. But most of us are disgusted by cockroaches or rats or something like that. Our disgust trigger is, is coming out. And when it comes out in that way, I push you away. You're outside of my circle. I no longer have to lean into you. And when that happens, there's a very interesting emotional response that's triggered. When disgust rises in response to people, people emotionally respond into contempt towards one another. Now, contempt is an interesting reality because when contempt sets in, relationships start to dissolve. They start to fade away in our lives. And, and the reason this happens over and over again is because contempt is hierarchical. When I look at you, my face turns up, right? If, if, if I feel that level of contempt, my face turns, my nose turns up, and I've lowered you in my mind. There's a hierarchy to it. And psychologists have done this research on, in fact, one psychologist, John Gottman, has done research on married couples looking at divorce. And they discovered over and over again that if they would put couples in sort of a you know, a fighting match, to say, to say the least, like put them in a room, tell them to talk about a point of conflict. The couples who responded emotionally with contempt or disgust, by and large, were the couples they could predict getting a divorce later on. Not anger. Like if couples got yelling at each other, screaming at each other, resenting each other, all those things, those are not the couples that they could predict would actually end in divorce. The couples who were disgusted by one another are the ones who would end in divorce. Because disgust and contempt always dissolves relationships. That's how it happens. Now, I imagine all of us in this room, all who are watching online, we've felt the disillusion of relationships in this way. And it's been preceded oftentimes by levels of disgust that we might have for another individual. We might have had to do something in our lives where we've lowered them on the status of humanity, right? We've dehumanized them in some ways. And maybe it's not as strong as, you know, stating, calling them a name or something like that. But we've always had this sort of level rising up. And the question, even though our other might change from time to time, the question is, well, what's the solution? What do we do to override that? How do we get back against that? And here's the, the simple truth from Scripture. 
that we see all over and over and over again is to eat together. You might think that's weird. I'm I'm not going to call you to the altar today. (laughs) I'm going to call you to eat together. I want you to think about this. This is actually something that happened in Acts chapter 10. But it also happened over and over again in the context of Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when, P- when Paul is having trouble with the church not eating together in order and their social hierarchy is all out of mess, he calls them back together. He says, wait for each other. Eat with each other. Right? Peter is in this space and God is instructing him to eat. To eat. And, and if you think about this on a certain level, there is something quite disgusting about eating together. I don't know if there's there, the noise of someone chewing on food over and over again. That's disgusting, right? It just gets to you after a while. It's this disgusting space we enter into, but on a very deep, deep spiritual level, by sitting down and feasting with one another in the face of social disgust and contempt, feasting with one another starts to transform. Now, not eating one another, right? Not like tearing one another apart, feasting with each other. You know, I was at the Outreach Center just on Thursday this past week, and it was a beautiful moment where someone rolled through the line. And I say this all the time, if you've not been there, this is not, you know, ministries like this are not ministries you do so that you can just constantly give to needy people. There is a reciprocal nature of our ministry there where people give back to us in beautiful ways, right? We give and, and we receive and it's beautiful. And, and one lady came up and as we were sitting there, she started talking about her church meals. And she started talking about them because I was talking to her about Thanksgiving. What are you going to do for Thanksgiving? How you do it? She goes, you know, my grandkids, they think the church that we go to, they think they have Thanksgiving every week or every month because they have a big, big church dinner every single month. And every month, these kids who don't see a big, big, you know, table of food will go downstairs at church after church, and they'll see this huge spread. You know, everybody's brought their food in. They're like, it's Thanksgiving! They have this gratitude that just fills their hearts through the simple act of eating. Simple act. And so I don't want to call you to an altar this morning. You know, I thought for a while maybe I could serve communion. I, I don't want to serve communion because sometimes we just let that be our, be our thing. I want to call, to call you to a place where you might eat with one another. For people in your life who you might start to feel that contempt rising up, why don't you eat together? Sit down and share a meal with each other. Right? It might be your spouse. I don't want to put that on. Like Maybe you've not ate with them in a while in a real meaningful way. You just sit in front of a TV and have your TV dinners or whatever. Maybe it's time to sort of pull back. Take them out for dinner. Sit down. Have a meal together. Maybe it's your child, maybe it's your grandchild, maybe it's a friend or a coworker, where you can just sit down and you can share that meal with each other. This actually became a centerpiece of practice for the ancient church. Every time they got together, they ate together. They ate together. They gathered together and they ate. And the reason that they did this is because they kept forgetting, like we forget, about the boundaries. They kept raising those boundaries back up. In fact, Peter, he was, he was chastised in Acts chapter 10. By the time you get to Galatians chapter 2, Paul has to chastise Peter again. Peter, you've forgotten. Right? You were the one who first took the gospel to the Gentiles, and now you're excluding them. Peter, take down the barrier. Sit down. Eat with these people. I mean, Paul just calls him out in, in Galatians chapter 2. He says, Peter, don't forget. And the same is true for us. We need this over and over and over and over again in our lives. And there's two reasons I'm going to leave you with as to why we need this over and over. One, 
it's a visible reminder that we're mortal. When you look at someone across the table, you realize that we are all mortals bent towards death. And we all need this food to survive. But two, it's a daily cycle. You don't get away from it. You have to do it over and over and over and over again. It's not a one and done. This is the thing that we do most regularly in our life. And it's the, for this reason that this practice became the centerpiece of our lives. And it could be the centerpiece of yours. Now, I've already heard groups, I think, I think Shannon may be the only one here this morning, but every Saturday night now, isn't it, Shannon? There's groups that go out to eat together in the church. I love this. I've told them that I'm going to steal them one week and, and get them to me, but all our, it's this group of ladies getting together, and they're eating together. And this is the, oh, there's Kim. Kim, Kim didn't broke in, too. You guys, guys got to sit together, sisters. You're sitting on the opposite sides. There's a boundary here in the middle that needs to be removed. <laughs> This is, this is what it means to be the church. This is how we sit down. And so I want to encourage you to find spaces in your life this week where you come together and you find a way to eat. So who do you want to eat with? How do you want to invite them into that space in your life? And as we sing this closing song, I want you to make some notes about how you can do that this week. Maybe it's a family member, like I said. Maybe it's someone who's a little bit distanced. Maybe it's someone who's there's a lot of friction between you and your relationship right now. How can you break down that friction just by sharing a meal? And it won't happen overnight. It may not happen with that first meal. But the consistent practice over and over again builds a relationship and changes it. Would you stand with me? God, we thank you so much for this day. This space where we can come together from all different backgrounds in life. And we gather into this space to be united in your love, to be strengthened by one another's presence and transformed. And God, even though I know the barriers that we sort of put up all the time threaten our communion with each other, but I ask, Father, that you would help us to remove those barriers, to eliminate those barriers in our lives. And in very specific way this morning, God, I'd ask that you would help us to do that by sharing of a meal with each other where we can once again restore our connection with each other and with you. We can see true love for our neighbor arise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.